This is Paul Cash, co-author of Humanizing B2B, the new truth in marketing that will transform your brand and your sales. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Paul Cash to talk about the book he has co-authored with James Trezona, Humanizing B2B, the new truth in marketing that will transform your brand and your sales, published by Practical Inspiration Publishing. Paul has led a 25-year career in business marketing and entrepreneurship, starting in 1996 when he set up a screensaver software company. After that, he co-founded a technology marketing company, Tidal Wave, which became the fastest-growing marketing agency in the UK and for which he was once offered £19 million for, which he turned down. In 2013, having exited Tidal Wave, he set up Rooster Punk, a business-to-business agency. And, interesting fact... He is the son of legendary singer-songwriter Johnny Cash. Paul, congratulations on humanizing B2B, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Hey, great intro. Thank you, Douglas. Okay, you're not really the son of, of Johnny Cash, but I, you know. There's Johnny Cash, there's the tennis player, Pat Cash, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of Cashes around. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. But the true interesting fact is you are an FA qualified goalkeeper coach, and you run a youth football team in Surrey on the weekends. Yes, I know you guys call it soccer, so I am a, yeah, a qualified goalkeeper soccer coach, uh, which is obviously a, a huge interest of mine, and um, there's a story going back to when I was eight years old, uh, which talks about how I wanted to become a goalkeeper, but maybe that's for another time, unless you want me to tell you it. <laughs> well, so do you have a, a favorite uh, English Premier League team? Yeah, I'm a... Um, for my sins, I'm an Everton football club ah. fan. So Everton and Liverpool, both on the the Merseyside. Uh, oh, good. Liverpool. So yeah, okay. I'm a blue. All right. So I guess we've just lost most of our listeners yes, in the UK. I think <laughs> no, but I've uh, I've the last uh, two or three years, I've really become very interested in English Premier Football. And I watch it on uh, Saturdays and Sundays. It's on in the morning here in the United States. And I've watched okay. some documentaries about the different teams and I just I, I find it very uh, interesting and learning about the history as well as uh, there's been a number of other authors from the United Kingdom who and even the United States who are fans of, of various teams and uh, I do appreciate you not trash talking about your opponents as some of them do <laughs> so uh, at any rate well listen I absolutely loved your book congratulations it is so well written and it it, it was right up my alley. And I tell you, I don't know. I, I wonder if because I've read hundreds and hundreds of these marketing and sales books, I think I appreciated this even more because of the way you all presented this information. And I, um, it just got me really, really excited. And I think your book is going to do, is going to sell really, really well. And if, whatever I can do to help help you sell one or two more, that would be great. I've even bought a copy already. No way. For Check my content for my content director. <laughs> and Douglas Burdett doesn't buy a lot of books these days. But no, uh, I can imagine. <laughs> well, the authors are so good to, to send me copies of them. Let me uh, start with a, a couple of excerpts, and we can uh, dive in. Let's go for it. Dive in. That's a goal-keeping 
you know. It's very good. See, we're going to get the goalie puns all the way through, are we? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the jokes are only going to get worse, folks. Okay, so here we go. Trying to save B2B marketing. Here we go. (laughs) This is a book about you, the hero of our story. You're the much-loved, often misunderstood wearer of many B2B marketing hats. The technologist, the strategist, the customer champion, the data expert, the creative leader, the analyst, the storyteller. You are the hardworking, ambitious B2B marketer of the current age. Whether you're a chief marketing officer or one of the younger generation of digital marketers wanting to leap ahead and win. However, and we hate to say it, there's something that you don't know. There's a giant meteor spinning towards you, and it's going to have a catastrophic effect on your profession. Paul Cash, don't leave us hanging. What, what is this meteor? Yeah, so obviously we're trying to create a bit of drama uh, at the beginning of the book, and um, but there is an important point behind it, which is I think for, I guess, the past two decades within B2B marketing, we have followed this wisdom that seemed to have come from somewhere, but we don't know where, that all B2B marketing is logical, rational, and um, people, and I mean audiences, you know, whether you're a, a CIO, an IT director, a fleet manager, a chief procurement officer, you know, we all act in a very robotic way when it comes to making decisions. And we know that is you know, absolute rubbish in this modern day and age with all the kind of the data and the science that's available to us. And so the meteor really is this thing that we need to get away from the speeds and feeds that we talk about in the book and really embrace, I guess, these new what we call master levers, which are things like purpose and brand and emotion and storytelling. And those are the things that are going to save B2B from I guess being lost in the in the mix and if marketing itself can't be the engine of growth for the modern business company then marketing is going to be pushed to the margins and probably end up as just like the lead generation or just the communications team and the opportunity I think for all marketeers out there is to embrace this moment now marketing's never had so much power so much access to data so much potential in what we can achieve from brand and everything else and it's just an incredibly exciting time yes and let me just read one other part Unfortunately, the issue doesn't end there because there's another problem to deal with, and it's one that's reared its head time and again when we interviewed various senior marketing leaders to broaden our understanding for this book. It's the way a CMO talks to their marketing team is completely different to the way they talk to their board. With their teams, the CMO is happy to discuss strategy, branding, and long-term customer relationships. But the moment they step into the boardroom, they're confronted by a chief executive officer and chief financial officer who see brand as a dirty word, as something that sucks money out of the business rather than generating value. They want their CMO to create a predictable revenue machine. In other words, the lead generation tools and tech stack that you're only too familiar with. But what if our CMO were to ask their board what they really want from marketing? If they did, they'd surely learn it would be to make the company number one in its category or to take it somewhere new. In other words, to achieve transformational growth. This contradiction is essentially what this book helps you to deal with. So going further into that, you talk about there's three languages out there. Uh, yes. And I was wondering if you could talk about that. That's the, the product and you know, the, the language of the product, the language of the customer, and then the language of emotion, which you argue changes everything. Yeah, so obviously – I'm a big Simon Sinek fan, like many people probably who listen to your show are. And obviously, Simon Sinek hit upon that glorious idea over a decade ago when he called the uh, the uh, the golden circle and he did his what, why, how. And so I thought, well, I need to have a golden something if I'm going to be uh, any celebrated author in this in this day and age. So I created my golden triangle. And as you say, you know, it's about the three different languages that you need to master in B2B. And at the base of the of the triangle is what we call the language of product. And that is effectively the the form, the function, the features of any product, solution, services, stack, whatever that might be. And, you know, obviously because lots of B2B is made up of tech and engineering and quite technical businesses, you can understand the language of products is incredibly important. But it's not the only language, you know, but everyone believes that you have to communicate the features and the benefits, the speeds and the feeds um, 
over and over again to an audience. But what we've learned over, I guess, maybe the past 10 years is we need to evolve up the triangle and start understanding the language of the customer. And that's all about their pains and gains, their conscious needs, having empathy, you know, understanding what it is they're, they're trying to do within, within their company. But just knowing what your product does and understanding your customer isn't enough. In order to be able to sell to them, you've really got to master the art of of language or of storytelling and emotion to be able to really penetrate and get through to them on a very human level. And that's what we have right at the top of the triangle, um, the language of emotion. And there's obviously lots of research and data, some great stuff done by the B2B LinkedIn Institute, which talks about the role of emotion in B2B and how it does have a significant impact on performance of, um, of business and marketing growth channels. So, yeah, so that's my uh, kind of, you know, Simon Sinek uh, golden thing, as we say. Well, it makes an awful lot of sense. And what you just described, your book makes an indisputable case for, even for the most logical, analytical CEO or who thinks they think logically, which <clears throat> you and I both know uh, we're almost completely driven by emotions. So just to recap, you write the language of product shows you shows that you know what you're selling. The language yep. of the customer shows that you know who you're selling to. The language of emotion shows that you know how to sell. So along with that, and I just, again, your book is so quotable. And I had already sent you a message about this beforehand. So I may quote your book just a little bit more than usual. And I'll be quoting it in uh, presentations I give and claiming it as my own work. No, I'm kidding. I will give you full attribution, uh, Mr. Cash. You write, the more closely you align your product with emotion, the greater the impact on your company's growth, the steeper your career trajectory, and the more inspirational leader you'll become. Just like learning any language, it's not an instant fix. But it's a quest well worth venturing on when you know what you can achieve. Given that the end purpose of all B2B marketing is to move minds rather than to fill meaningless KPIs, such as website visits and cost per click, you're far better off becoming an expert in people and their feelings than in a limited set of marketing techniques. However, see, we're the, we're, we got the whole storytelling thing going on. Up the down. You're up, rocking yeah. it. You're yeah, rocking I see it. what you did there. I just... <laughs> I'm a slow learner, but I'm catching on. You're right. In B2B, we suffer from a delusion, and it's this, that buyers always act in a rational, logical, and economic way. Talk about what you mean when you say buyers don't just want to buy from you anymore. They want to buy into you. Yeah. So that's, you know, I guess that's the central premise of the whole book. And something that I've seen and witnessed firsthand in my own decision making, when I've talked to CMOs, when they've been procuring different parts of their technology stack. And in early markets and mature markets, we're seeing in B2B now that that product sell, solution sell, services sell, whichever way you want to describe it, is so much more than just the form and the function of the product itself. And relationships, culture, people, values, what you stand for, how you come across your brand, all these factors absolutely play a pivotal role in the way people make a decision about which brand to choose. And therefore, it makes perfect sense to me that, you know, it's not about obviously uh, people buying from you, it's about people buying into you. And if you believe in that, you look at your marketing and you look at all the different assets and resources at your availability and you think, right, okay, how can I use these in the most powerful way to get people to buy into us as a company? And, you know, that is what all these tools like emotion and storytelling are there to be able to support and deliver. Yes. Again, let me ask this. Uh, you write, thinking of B2B marketing as being about creating leads is like thinking that the purpose of life is to breathe. Yeah, so I've been in many conversations with people, which it kind of, you know, over a beer gets quite pointed, which is, what is the purpose of marketing? Okay, and people argue very ferociously that the purpose of marketing is to generate leads for the business. Yeah, and in a very binary way, you know, when you dumb it all down, you get it. But marketing to me has so much more potential. And I use that analogy, which is, you know, 
what's the purpose of life? Well, when you boil it down to everything, it's about breathing. <laughs> That's the purpose of life. <laughs> it's one of my priorities. It's so yeah. much more than that. You know, it's about living a life. And marketing, to me, has so much potential. And it's there to be able to help the company deliver on the untapped potential it has in its in its market. And it embraces everything. You know, it's, it's part HR, it's part operations, it's part technology, it's the marketing. It really does cover lots of different things. And it's about helping companies fulfill their potential. And in the book, you explain that a lot of B2B companies, it is, in fact, driven by uh, sales. And that's why the, uh, maybe the overemphasis on leads. But there, it's right. It's important. But there's quite a bit more that marketing uh, could and should be doing. And we'll touch on that in a minute about the, uh, about the sales. So the book is organized in two parts. The first is, you know, what, what the, well, why B2B marketing has to change. Um, and the second part is well, how, to, how to go about doing that, more or less, at the risk of oversimplifying the way your, your book is organized. And I wanted to read from the, the beginning of the first section, which you've rather clearly titled this one chapter, What You're Doing Isn't Working. <laughs> you write, telling you that what you're doing isn't working seems like a pretty bold statement, and we'd not be surprised if you found yourself disagreeing with it. What do you mean not working? If I reduce my prices, it increases revenue. When I invest in advertising, new leads come in. And this last time we revamped our search engine optimization, we climbed up the rankings. Sure, some campaigns have been more successful than others, but they certainly work. Let's be clear. We're not saying that what you're doing isn't triggering any results. Paul Cash, what are you saying? Yeah, so I think, you know, having had 25 years experience in B2B, one of the things that frustrates me enormously is the lack of imagination and potential for what marketing can deliver. And as we've gone through this kind of period of automation and we have all these performance marketing channels set up, businesses have got used to calibrating a set of performance levers. And I mean things like Google, SEO, social media, influencer marketing, whatever that tool set is. And they calibrate them every quarter, every month to try and spit out a slightly better result than the period before. And I talk about in the book, there's a friend of mine called Joe Gulhuli, and she said to me, Paul, I'm not a marketing director, I'm a lever puller. Yeah, and I really like that idea that that's what marketing had become. But there is so much more potential to transform a business rather than just keep on chasing small incremental results. And that really is where the power of brand sits. And we talked a minute ago about B2B being very sales-led. And you're absolutely right. The history of B2B is incredibly dominated by sales. But we are now starting to see a shift where brand is becoming significantly more important because people understand that if they get the brand bit right, these master levers around purpose, emotion, storytelling, then those master levers amplify all those other performance levers that B2B marketeers pull and calibrate every every month. So it's really an ambition to kind of get away from the incremental stuff and start looking at the bigger picture about how marketing can really transform a business, not just chase those kind of, you know, better leads, as it were. And it can. It can, absolutely. And as you talk about in the book a few times, when you use the word brand, a lot of people maybe think, well, as I like to call them civilians, they might think of it, oh, it's uh, logos, it's, um, as a lot of British authors like yourself describe, it's coloring in. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's, not, that's not at all uh, what we're talking about. I let me just want to quote one other thing here. You say, simply promote, focusing on promoting how your service will improve on what was there before means that you spend your time pulling levers. Each lever represents a tactic you could deploy whether it be creating social media posts, placing ads online, revamping your website, or sending email campaigns. They give sales a short-term boost, but they're so boring and limited, aren't they? They don't engage with your audience on a higher level or create any meaningful loyalty to your brand. Instead, they encourage you to keep focusing on numbers so you can manipulate your figures to prove you've done the right thing. Let's step back for a minute, though, Paul. How did B2B marketing become this way? It wasn't always that way. No, I mean, B2B marketing, when you look back at its history, before the term B2B marketing became vogue, it was termed industrial marketing. Mm -hmm. So anybody who 
will have a father who maybe was a typical charismatic salesperson, and they were mostly men back in the day. It was very relationship-driven. The charismatic salesperson would go in, they would meet with a potential buyer, and all they would need from marketing is some form of trade catalog, some form of basic content uh, or collateral to be able to kind of, you know, use it as a visual aid or a visual tool. And it was all relationships, it was all emotion, all relationships. And what happened, obviously, when the internet came was, oh, okay, how do we now evolve? And that's when really B2B marketing became much more vogue as a term really back in the you know the early 90s as it were and obviously with the technology boom um, and obviously magazines like the UK the B2B marketing magazine that came into the fore it really started to own B2B as a phrase and it was an incredibly exciting time but the reality is that when SaaS business models came along in the mid 90s there was this real need to go, right, these expensive sales reps with their company cars and their expense accounts, we need to get rid of them and we need to use the internet and the website as being our lead salesperson. But what they forgot was that the they didn't use brand to build that emotional connection that is what the salespeople have been doing in the past. They'd salespeople have been disintermediated from the process. And so what we saw was this whole slew of product-driven B2B brands that were pitching up with their websites and lacking in any emotion or any ability to, you know, create that relationship um, opportunity that the salespeople have been doing for, for decades. Yes. So let's talk a little bit more about where the buyer is uh, from yeah. a, an emotional standpoint. And this further helps set the stage for the, the premise of your book, particularly the, the issue about emotion. You write that most uh, buyers uh, or B2B decision makers live in a constant state of fear. Frustration, that's an acronym, folks. Frustration, evasiveness, apathy, and risk aversion. Remind listeners about those. Yeah, so, it, you know, one of the things that I kind of do when I'm trying to make sense of the world is I try to create these little mental models and frameworks that just help me put in the right place the things that are running through my mind. And one of the challenges a few years ago was this idea about why is it that business-to-business decision-makers seem to have this, I guess, not f- – I use the word fear because obviously fear is part of it all – but. Again, they when I used to speak to them, they had a massive frustration with, with their job role, lack of resources, lack of time, lack of investment. They were apathetic to the approaches made by vendors because they would all say the same kind of thing. There was no intrigue or interest in the way they approached. And so because they became bored, they also became evasive. So they'd be using ad blockers and you know not turning on their telephones. And generally within B2B, we know that there is this kind of, you know, the loss aversion um bias and so this risk appetite is 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 very low in b2b <coughs> excuse me and so i kind of thought well, that's a nice little acronym you know people are living in this fear zone and what most marketing people do is they market to the fear zone they they do boring stuff they make the 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 work they put out to uh, people not as interesting as it should be and so all the time we're just getting getting trapped in this in this fear zone and it's important that we need to break out and I talk about this idea about the antidote to fear is brave and we talk about the B being around buyer emotion we talk about the R being about recognition for that individual you know what can we do for them rather than what we what they can do for us um, I talk about um, um, appreciation so just you know this is where ABM has become really good trying to have real appreciation for someone's individual role and circumstance and what that organization is trying to do and use that emotional intelligence to be able to um, create a better sales pitch V is about value so ultimately what is the value you are delivering to that company and E is about engagement so how are you mastering the use of creativity in whatever shape or form to be really be able to engage audiences so fear is the kind of the current state of play the status quo and brave is kind of the antidote yes and in the book you talk about how abm is a uh, a, a sort of a rising star in other words it plays yeah. very nicely into what you're talking about but also you mentioned uh, that the growth of chief revenue officers and chief growth officers is promising why do you say that 
Yeah, so obviously stateside, these new titles have been around probably for, you know, six or seven years. And like all good things, they've crept over to, to Europe and to the UK. And what we're really seeing is this more commercial mindset that marketeers need to embrace, not just about PR, it's not just about traditional communications. It's really trying to understand, right, how can this marketing budget generate significant growth opportunities for the business and getting away from we talked before about just chasing the KPIs and being able to have conversations with the board and talk in the language of business and not just in the language of marketing. And this CRO, the um, the, the growth officers, those are the people tasked with doing this now. And so marketeers have got to step up because those are the new C-suite jobs that the maybe the old CMO needs to be thinking about because you know CROs seem to be um, taking over so it's all about commercial mindset and I think that's a good thing B2B needs to have for sure absolutely and just to be clear not everything that starts in the US and then ends up in the UK is a good thing <laughs> you can go ahead and make your own Meghan Markle joke but let's wrap up this part right here you write there's been talk of the lack of emotion in B2B marketing for a decade. It's not a new story. It's just that for some reason, marketers haven't been sure how to use it, and B2B agencies haven't done a good job of explaining it. Now is the time to change. If you're to dodge the media or heading your way, your marketing needs to put your customers into the heart of the conversation you have with them. So, Paul... You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! <laughs> you scared me, then. <laughs> Well, I had to wake people up because uh, yeah, yeah. you know they're probably groaning for the Meghan Markle joke. But you talk about the new truth, and let's go back to that. The truth is that about people don't want to buy from you; they want mm -hmm. to buy into you. Into you, yeah. So can you can you talk a bit more about that? Because that is enormously important. And, and can you say more about what it means to buy into something? Yeah, I, mean, I think the the statement is um, fairly self explanatory, but. The idea really is that, especially for net new customers, um, when they're looking at suppliers to to use, it's anything but a transactional relationship they're after, you know, depending on how much investment is required and um, things like that. And when they evaluate a brand, you know, they, they go onto a website, they download content, they're taking on board all these cues all the time and building up these impressions of who these companies are. And, you know, we know that brands are often 60 to 70% down the sales cycle before they even pick up the phone and speak to a sales rep. So all these things that brands have in their play, you know, the websites, the content, etc., are all forming an impression. And, you know, knowing that that's true means that, having a sense of purpose, having really powerful video content, you know, when your website really shows the culture of the company and the way that your employees are going that extra mile, what your customers say, all of this is incredibly powerful stuff. And that's what I mean by buying into a company. You know, people are sucking in all this information if it's done well. Enormously important to people, even though they might not be able to articulate that. Yeah, it's like... um it's like brand body language, you know, it's these non-verbal, these invisible cues that you're picking up all the time that make you like a company more than another one. Yeah. So the brands are enormously important in terms of uh, making a transformational change. And I just wanted to read something because I know there are a lot of salespeople out there listening. And I want to, to then follow up this quote and ask you about uh, a little bit more about this, this worse, the use of stories. You're right. If your salespeople had a script to use that tapped into what made your brand special, would they gain more business? The answer has to be yes. So why are you only focusing on selling features and benefits? You should be competing on your story, not your products, because there's a far more powerful differentiation in your story than there is in your speeds and feeds. In all mature competitive markets, the only element that separates one company from another is brand, of which story is a key part. How businesses show up in the market, how they communicate, and what kind of personalities they have. This is what we resonate with as business buyers as much as we do consumers. Now, I am always careful about using the word storytelling. And I mean, your, your business does it, but it's one of those words that I often caution marketers to be careful about saying around civilians. And when I mean civilians, I mean people outside the marketing department. 
Because, you know, like the word brand or storytelling or whatever, fill in the blank marketing, they think it's another another uh, trend there. But explain what we mean by story. And I, I guess I should start out with something really obvious. We're not talking about making things up, not telling the truth, right? Yeah. So I think in you're absolutely right. Storytelling as a concept is incredibly new within the landscape of B2B. As a tool in consumer marketing, it's been around for, for decades. You know, great TV advertising is powerful storytelling. And there's a, you know, loads of great examples of brands doing that. But because B2B doesn't tend to turn up on TV, you know, it's never really embraced the power of video or traditional ad formats. So the representation of emotion that is obviously brilliantly delivered through you know big London ad agencies or big American ad agencies doesn't really happen in B2B but it's changing and what we're seeing now is that you know the role of emotion through storytelling in B2B is incredibly powerful and that can be everything from a written piece of narrative that really lands that emotional punch Video obviously is hugely on the rise and within the context of B2B, it's incredibly powerful because for the first time we're getting to see brands using video and music and all these emotional triggers to really connect with us on a on a much more sensory level. And so it's you know, I see it as hugely interesting. And we talk about lots of different stories. There's an origin story, you've got your customer case study stories, you've got your purpose story, your environment story, your innovation story. There's loads of different stories that you need to tell as part of an overall storytelling framework to basically get people to buy into you back to that truth we talked about again. Right. And let me just read one part that I think will help a lot of people. Understand. In other words, you show in one page on page 65 how a lot of companies talk about themselves. And then in the very next paragraph, you explain, you show how it could be turned into a story. So I'm just going to read that. Let's say you're the marketing director of an alternative finance company and your website says this, okay? We're the UK's leading alternative finance company. Our history in fintech goes back eight years when we developed the first automated end to end peer to peer marketplace. Our loan approval system is the fastest in the market. If you're looking for a quick business loan, look no further. Then you write, this is what we call the language of the product. So far, so standard. So boring, I might add. And so probably, uh, I don't really understand a lot of tech companies, what, what their product actually does. Okay, so then you say, the website could say this. And the reason I'm reading this is so people can understand, get a quick example of storytelling. You write... Last year, we helped Frank and 400,000 other small business owners who lie awake at night, crippled by the thought of their business going bust. Without judgment, Jackie, one of our helpers, secured Frank a lifeline loan in under 48 hours. Frank's business is now back on its feet, and he feels like a million dollars, although the amount we loaned him was significantly lower than this. All it took to stop the sleepless nights was a simple phone call to Jackie. (laughs) A and B, right there. Yeah, and the big difference you can see straight away is that the the first example is the company talking about itself. Yeah, the customer is not in the room. The second example, we've obviously over-exaggerated, but it's the customer in the room. And the power of great storytelling is when you, as the individual, can see yourself in that story. Hey, that guy there, Mike, oh my God, I want his life. You know, it's it's that's the power that storytelling needs to create in B2B. It's relevant, it's referenceable, you know, it's... It's it's engaging. Yeah. Now, I had to laugh when I read, you'd be hard-pressed to find any business that doesn't swear on its mother's life that it puts its customers first. <laughs> of course it does. And yet, bizarrely, customers are not at the center of most businesses. Even B2C companies have to try hard to remember that customers are the most important elements of their operations. And in B2B land, they barely get a look in. Why is that? Why is it so much worse in B2B than, than in, in B2C? So I think, you know, and again, I, we use the phrase uh, loosely, but there is this customer experience obsession that has been, you know, both sides of the pond for, you know, probably 10 years now. Yeah. And you would think that the logic is every single business on the planet puts their customer first. You know, when we hear about it, we talk about it, there's so much content written about it, but when you really get under the skin of a company, what drives the company is the product or the services, what they make. 
there's manufacturing plants there's there's whole you know business operations set up to make things yeah and whichever way customers get a fair crack of the whip they do not come first in most companies and so i think you know the legacy tech giants it's it's tough because they've had obviously the opportunity to build manufacturing plants all around the world to make everything from printers to hard drives etc the modern day SaaS businesses are probably far more customer friendly because they don't have the legacy but it really is just this switch of gear to think about audiences first and not product yes Um, and that's what we need to get away from and also uh, there may not always be a direct connection there may be selling through channels yeah, uh, sure. or intermediaries, which gets the customer even further away. I tell you, uh, just jumping ahead, and we can't, I can't do justice to the to the book, but there are just a few parts that I just had to talk about, and one of them was on page sixty eight, and it was exactly. I even wrote this in the column. This is why I have so many books about sales on the Marketing Book Podcast, and you're talking about how. Some of the things that are keeping B2B marketers from being more effective. And you're right, traditionally, the marketing team in B2B has always been the servant of sales. Sales drives everything, with marketing's role being defeated leads, create bids, and design brochures. Ironically, while marketing should be the one with the direct line to the customer, the only people who've always been close to customers have been salespeople. And marketing has allowed this to happen. We've not heard of many CMOs who go out each week to spend time with customers, learning about their habits, issues, and challenges, but salespeople do. And my sense is that the best marketers have a deep understanding into sales and, more importantly, their customers and the way their customers buy and the friction that the customers encounter. And that's why there have been a number of authors of sales books who have said marketers should spend at least a day a month with their salespeople. And I would go further than that and say, you know, if, if you haven't spent a day with a customer each month. But that's still a, a rarity from your perspective? Yeah, I think, you know, we talked about ABM a little bit ago, but, you know, ABM has been a driving force in terms of the need to align sales and marketing. But the for anybody who's kind of, works firsthand in that environment, it's incredibly political. So while sales might welcome insights from marketing, they do not want to hand over ownership of their customers to marketing. Sure. You know, they protect them um, fiercely. And so when you're deploying some kind of, you know, early stage ABM program and you're doing your account selection and you're asking salespeople to, you know, give you uh, a number of accounts, the salespeople will give you all the shitty accounts. You know, they keep all the, the prize ones to themselves. And so marketing is always kind of on the back foot. And there is a huge amount of politics and, you know, fiefdoms that go between the two. And I think sales are recognizing now that marketing is becoming ever more powerful. And I think there's a bit of a fear factor there. But the reality is, you know, we need sales and marketing alignment more than we've ever needed it before because they are two sides of the same coin. And the business needs them to be working together, not separately. And so I'm quite excited for where the future goes. I mean, you know, 10, 10, 15 years ago, the sales and marketing director was quite a common one. And then obviously we split out. You have a sales director and a marketing director. I think, you know, the sales and marketing director role is the new CRO or the chief growth officer. That is that combined um, that combined role. So I think it's exciting, but it's also full of politics and full of challenges, the human factor. Yeah. It, just to wrap up this first section, you talk about how, back to the first thing we talked about, about the product. Uh, a lot of marketers, maybe some that came from B2C, will really immerse themselves in the product. And uh, try to understand it. And that's not a, a bad thing. Um, a part of it is you say they don't want to be outshone by the salespeople and the engineers who know more about the technical capabilities. But you then go on to argue that the person who le- least understands the product is the one who should do the marketing of it. Why is that? Yeah. So again, there's probably a bit of a, a throwaway statement, but um, there's a there's a phrase that I've always loved, which was from reading a book probably 10, 15 years ago by a guy called Adam Morgan. And he wrote the definitive book um, called Eating the Big Fish, which is all about challenger brands. And one of the phrases he used in the book is this thing called intelligent naivety. And what he means by that is that when you're so absorbed in a company or a product or a brand, it's difficult for you to get perspective of what 
everyone else sees in the market. And the reason why challenger brands exist is because when people who don't have any understanding of, say, the recruitment business set up a recruitment business, they often do it in a completely different way than if someone had spent 20 years in recruitment would do it because they would just do same old, same old. Mm-hmm. And so smart people have this thing he calls intelligent naivety. And I think that is a really precious thing that marketeers should own, which is don't get so absorbed into what your product does because you will become like the engineers and the techies and the product marketeers whose job it is to know that stuff. You need to be more like your customer. And they're not absorbed in your product. They're absorbed in their own world. Yeah, doing their own thing, all the things that concern them. So the challenge for marketing is, right, live in the world of your customer. Yeah, don't just live in the world of your product. Yes, absolutely. And that intelligent naivety is something that you should really treasure as an idea to be able to get the best work out. Oh, it's a superpower. And a quick story, years ago, there was a listener, I think he was in New Zealand, and he would, he'd been in marketing before, but then he'd left. But he started listening to the podcast, and then he applied for a job in marketing, and he'd been listening to my podcast, and he, he said, hey, I, I, this, I'm, I'm interviewing, I'm a listener, I've been interviewing, and I think it's going really well, and I've talked about a number of things I've learned on your podcast. And I said, oh, that's great, it really made me feel good, you know? And uh, he then got back in touch after a while and said, hey, I got that job. I really appreciate you know your podcast. I'm thinking, well, you know, he was a pretty sharp guy anyway, but uh, happy to know that it made a difference. Then he came back, as as many listeners do, and said, "Well, can you recommend a book? Because I don't want anyone to have to read 335 books if if I can point them to one or two right now that'll help them." Sure. And uh, he said, uh, "I think he was working for some sort of tech uh, company. Fil- uh, it had to do with water filtration, some sort of industri- industrial." application. And he said, do you know of any books about that topic? I said, well, I don't, but that doesn't mean there aren't books about that. But you know, there are engineers at your company that will forget more about your product and that science behind it than you'll ever learn. Why don't you instead focus on becoming the expert on the customer? And I recommended one or two books to him. And a couple months later, I got a message back from him and he said, my goodness, that worked. I went off and did what was in that book. And now when I'm at the meetings, they listen to me. <laughs> even He even knows more about the customers now than the salespeople, meaning you know, like what goes on in the customer's life. So it, it, when I saw this, it, it sort of warmed the cockles of my heart. But speaking of heart, let's go on to the second half of the book where you you know, you basically outline the, the, the way it's done in great detail, actually. And we can't go into that much detail. And I wanted to talk about the way we think. And there was just one part of the book that just really confused me, Paul. This is the only thing that kind of came out of left field. You wrote, a good friend called me in a panic. He just left his doctor's surgery where he'd been advised by his exasperated GP that if he didn't clean up his diet, stop smoking, and start taking some exercise, he'd be at risk of ending his days in the ICU. My friend's response? To drive straight to KFC and comfort eat a bucket of chicken and fries. Paul, what, you wrote that like it's a bad thing. What, what was the problem? <laughs> yeah, and that just captures the perfect notion that we are, as human beings, irrational, not rational by nature. And the challenge with B2B is, as we said right at the beginning, to ignore this logic that says everything is a binary, rational, logical, economic decision. Because when you're selling to human beings, let's face it, that's the truth. We're not selling to bricks. We're not selling to businesses. We're selling to real people, whether they're individuals or part of a buying committee. And they do not act in a logical way. They buy on emotion and they justify with fact. I'll say it again, they buy on emotion, and they justify with fact. And there's a brilliant book by Rory Sutherland called Alchemy. Yeah, that was on the show. About this, yeah, in loads of great detail. And Rory's a, a legend here in the UK in terms of taking B2B marketing and looking at things like behavioral science and neuroscience and, you know, something I'm really passionate about as well, the whole psychology of understanding how to influence the buyers and decision makers that we are we you know we need to for our for our businesses. Yes. Paul, if we're fundamentally emotional beings, why does B2B spend all its time trying to appeal to the part of the brain that just deals with facts and figures, logic and rigor? Yeah, it's crazy. So, you know, well, you know, again, Simon Sinek talks about <laughs> Is it because we all go eat uh, KFC with fries? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's well, part know, of it's we- the sales thing, I guess, the sales-driven organizations, but there's other things. Yeah, I mean, you know, in the book, we talk about System 1, System 2, the Daniel Kahneman 
um, uh, model that was created that talks about these two different types of brain. We've got, you know, one's on autopilot, which is our kind of old limbic brain, the, the emotional brain, and then we've got the piloted brain, which is our neocortex, which is the front of our, which is the the new brain that we've got, which is all about facts and figures and processing of information, but has no capability for making a decision. Mm-hmm. That is all in the limbic brain, and that's where emotion is 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 proven to be a real powerful driver, which then gets us back to things like storytelling to unlock that emotion and make sense of the world. And you know, we could talk forever about you know how storytelling has been around for you know x thousands of years and it's the way we kind of create meaning in the world but um you know it is true in b2b as well and there's lots of good science and um we talk about these uh these neurotransmitters the chemistry of our bodies we talk about things like oxytocin which is uh, a chemical that is released in the body it's also known as the cuddle hormone because it's released through moments of intimacy it's the main chemical present where the mother has a baby creates that bonding and when oxytocin is present in the body it means that we have a higher propensity to trust people our guard is taken down and so it's been proven that when stories are being told, oxytocin has higher levels in the body. So there's lots of great chemistry and science that talk about how we are wired for stories. And it's just about in BCB trying to make some of that stuff relevant in a meaningful way. Yeah, it's like you're saying in the book, you want science? I got your science right here. Yeah, <laughs> it's, exactly. It's loaded with it. And one other quote, you said, it should be clear by now that your marketing needs to focus on how people feel, not on how they think, or rather how they think they think. It's time to end the insane situation in which a knowledge of human physique is considered to be essential when designing a piece of furniture, but a knowledge of human psychology is not deemed important when designing a marketing campaign. (laughs) B2B marketing has been getting it wrong for the past 30 years because most B2B brands don't know how to tap into emotions and leverage their marketing in a human way. So let's just go to the last half of the book. Uh, Let's start to wrap up by talking about the five principles of humanizing B2B marketing. And uh, let me just quote this one other part here. The beating heart of any business is its employees and customers, not its products. And as we've seen, customers aren't rational in their decision-making. In fact, they're the opposite. They buy on emotion and justify with fact. It's this messy, illogical, human part of B2B that's the missing piece of the marketing puzzle. And to slot it into place, you need to start turning your attention away from your products and towards your customers, colleagues, and everyone else connected with your business. It's their fears, ambitions, desires, and imaginations that should be the cornerstone of your marketing, not your product speeds and feeds. Of course, we're not saying that you should do away with all functional product explanations, just that they're not as important as you think they are. So let me just mention the five principles, and we can just touch on them briefly. We've already touched on some. First is, it's about people, not products. I hope that's been made clear thus far. You talk about, the second one is, you need a purpose that is actioned. Third is emotion is at your marketing core. Fourth is likability is transformational and storytelling is your vehicle. So one of the things that in is in the book is about this, as I mentioned, likability. Mm. And there was another book on the show recently called Badvertising, which talked about a different study about the overwhelming power of likability. And you talk about all the scientific research I think this really was one of the most surprising parts of the book, and I think it would be for a lot of people. And I don't know if that's been your experience under explaining likability, but why is likability so very important? Yeah, I think you know, to me, that chapter on likability is feels very on point at the moment. Some of the other stuff we talk about in the book is almost like a coming together of lots of thinking that's been around for for a while and you know the timing is obviously really important in terms of you know we talked about the idea that humanizing b2b is nothing new we've been talking about emotion in b2b for decades but but it's never really got traction and i feel that there is now because of the covid pandemic there's a moment that was happening in b2b a, a shift a change which makes this humanizing idea more relevant but when it comes to likability you know we've always known that we do business with people that we like it's a very, very simple mental concept that is as true as the, you know the day is night is day and day is dark or whatever the the phrase is. But um, in in business, it's it's so important to understand that it's not just about individual likability, you know, person to person. It's 
what is your brand doing, your website, your your the stories that you tell, your content to make you a likable company? So on a very basic level, you know, if a if a chief information officer was to look at three websites for three companies who all sell the same product and then was asked which is the best company, whichever one of those comes across as being the most likable is probably the one that's going to get the business. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by likable is there's got to be a sense of interest and intrigue, the way the website communicates, the language, the tone of voice. Does the business have a sense of mission? Is it just talking about its products? What is it the business needs to do to create that likability factor? And the reality is that most businesses just ignore it. They don't even think about the idea of, right, how can I make somebody like me? What do we need to do to put in place that we come across as a likable brand? And I think if if marketeers start to think about that, they start to engineer their websites and their content in a slightly different way. And, you know, I really like the idea that, unfortunately, in in business, we have this net promoter score. So a kind of a satisfaction likability score when a customer is obviously in the business and, and buying and procuring services. But for prospects... There's no, there's no index which says, right, you know, and it would be great to have a likability index and to be able to track that, that the most likable brands are the ones that get on the tender. The most likable brands are the ones that get through the tender and become, you know, a real, a real uh, customer, as it were. So, yeah, I'm a big factor of likability. Be so nascent and new, there's lots of ways to explore it. But there's been some great research out there. That advertising book you say um, has quoted some stuff. There was a study done in Amsterdam, I think. But, um, yeah, a really exciting part to explore further. Yes, yeah, so it was sort of new on my radar screen. You're right. The challenge for the vast majority of B2B companies is that they've never made any significant effort to be liked. Instead, they've had a blind obsession with their products at the expense of everything else. This has had a disastrous effect on consumer trust across all sectors because marketing's done such a bad job over the years that most people don't believe anything that companies say. And then you go on to write, there's a massive likability gap, or rather a truth gap, between what companies say they do and what they actually like. And just so the listener knows, there's quite a bit in this chapter about specific things that influence likability and things that that you can do. Just one other thing I wanted to ask about uh, storytelling, and that is in storytelling, it's a big, big chapter, and we've touched on a lot of this, but this was something that struck me as one more thing in your book that you could use to make a seemingly rational argument for storytelling. You write, creating a culture of storytelling in B2B marketing is a bit like the endless quest for self-improvement. Everyone knows they should be doing it, but somehow it never happens. And then you go on to write, if there only was some concrete evidence to prove its worth. <laughs> I was wondering if you, if you, uh, and I realize you didn't write this in the last week when I read it, but if you could talk about this significant objects project. I had read this once in another book and forgotten about it. I appreciate you mentioning it. Yeah, it's a, I, mean, I think it's a fascinating uh, piece of research. It was done back in 2009, and it was a social experiment. And it was two guys who came together, I think um, Rob Walker and Glenn, I can't remember his surname. But um, they, they bought from trinket shops, charity shops, 100 small, insignificant items. And this is like little paperweight globes, little statues, things like that. And they paid literally 100 dollars for these 100 um, trinket items and then they invited uh, creative writers to write a story about each of these insignificant objects and then to paste the story with the object onto an ebay account and to see if the story could add value to the actual product uh, product itself and the results were amazing just by putting these crazy and immersive stories alongside these insignificant objects, they increased by 2,700% the, the ROI on the, on the items. And I think the, one of the, the standout articles was a paperweight globe written with this crazy love letter 
about this woman's <laughs> life and how this paperweight had been in her husband's desk and her husband had left her and she'd been on the scene trying to date more guys. It was just this crazy story. And somebody bought it for like $170, you know, and it cost $1. And so it just really goes to show how you can take an insignificant object, attach a story, and through that story create meaning and then you can considerably change the way that people perceive how much they would pay for that object. So from insignificant to significant objects. And it just shows the power of storytelling and how uh, how some of the crazy stuff that is in that. I mean, there's the whole book about it. This is the Significant Objects book, and it's a brilliant read. Oh, yeah, interesting. I didn't realize the whole book. So they paid $129 for these items, yeah. and they sold them for $3,600. <laughs> That's correct, yeah. I can just so. imagine going in and saying to the boss, okay, how would you like an ROI of 2700 Now, obviously, you have to be careful and manage expectations. But you know, there was one other uh, quote about storytelling as it relates to all the levers that we talked about. Mm-hmm. And you write, storytelling isn't just another fad or even another lever in your marketing machine. In fact, it's the oil in the machine that makes everything work better. Now, when you all develop stories for clients i found it interesting you always try to do it in five slides why is that yeah i say we don't always try to do it but again it's a really useful tool and i think there's a diagram in the book and it's um it's something that somebody modeled not me off the back of the way steve jobs used to do his product launches for apple and his narrative and the story he told would take people on an emotional journey and that is the power of story where you start with you set the scene you Uh create the context and you then talk about the ambition wouldn't it be amazing if we could in this world achieve all these great things wouldn't the world be a better place and the audience oh my god yeah it'd be great to do that and then you take them on this emotional low and you talk about, yeah, but today the challenges that we face and our ability to do that are tempered by all these factors and it's really, really difficult and everyone's nodding and agreeing. And then he raises the room again and he talks about hope. Yeah, but we've got technology. Technology, AI has got the ability to, to change the world and everyone gets excited again. And then you talk about your solution. Okay, now... You can do that in five slides, but what most businesses do is they start by talking about the solution. So they don't lead people to the solution with a story. They start by talking about the solution. And it's just a really useful tool for anybody in marketing or sales to try and take their sales deck and put it into five slides using that framework. It's a great way to focus the mind. Absolutely. And that framework is on page 142. One other thing I wanted to ask you about that I think would just be enormously helpful for marketers who are trying to build the case and move their organizations along is it when you all approach a new client, instead of talking about branding, you talk about the importance of would it be better to get the, the right story out? Can, can you explain that? Yeah, so I think, again, we mentioned earlier, the word brand in B2B here in the UK is sometimes like taking poison to a kid's party. You say it, and it creates all manner of disgust in certain people. That's because there have been so many failed B2B brand projects over the past few decades, and there is still that stigma that it is just visual identity, it is logos, it is colouring in, and we all know that brand is so much more than that. So rather than trying to use the word brand and for it to be and conjure up all manner of evils, we use the word story, and we find the story is like a Trojan horse to talk about brand. And so you speak to an MD or you speak to a CEO and they get the idea that they need to have a story to tell them. A story is a way of engaging an audience and so you start talking in this new language but when you deconstruct it the mechanics of brand come into play um so it's just a it's just an easier way to talk about those kind of things and use the word story it's an idea worth stealing i'm stealing it there you go (laughs) well done so just to wrap up about the book you've got an entire chapter i mean again you really, you really seem to understand the emotions of your readers because the last chapter, you say, you know, we hope you convinced you of all of this. But for those of you who still need 
help trying to convince your management and all those other folks that I've been touching on, you then go through and recap two of the most important studies that lay out why this works. You could argue it seems quite rational. And these are relatively new studies. And for your episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com, I'm going to include a link to these, just as you do in the, in the book. But these are uh, enormously helpful, and they're very new, very new. So, Paul, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? One thing away from the book? Well, I think it's got to be the idea that as marketeers, we need to stop obsessing on the tactics and tools of our profession and start obsessing on people. So I talk about this, let's be experts in people first and then everything else will follow. So human is the only way to go. Be experts in people. That's my takeaway. Yeah, but Paul, that's harder. (laughs) Kidding, kidding. Uh, (laughs) What is one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the many ideas from your book or, or perhaps one that we've talked about? So I think it's about sitting in a room with your colleagues and just having that kind of conversation on your own or with an agency and trying to get to the emotional core of what your business does, not the functional core, the emotional core. What are the feelings that your brand can evoke in people? And then for your next campaign, try them out. You know, marketers need to experiment more and to try new things and a b test against the old way versus kind of the new emotional way and i think you know if your next marketing campaign doesn't evoke or stir some feelings in your audience then don't do it yes and absolutely you see you talk about how when you all do a, a client brief you always start with the feeling the customer wants to have by the end of the story yeah never with the product yeah, yeah. So I think if you start with a product, you end up following a very traditional path around this is the product, this is its USP, this is what it does, and it takes you down a very conventional route. But when you start with what feeling do we want to create within this audience, you then retrofit the product to that feeling. And it's just a complete flip of how you approach a brief or you know a piece of content or a campaign. Yes, I would argue... Easy to explain, hard to do, but if you can do it. Yeah, 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 for sure. That's why we need agencies. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, that's right. So what books have most inspired your work and career? Oh, this is a big one. So I think about 15, 20 years ago, I heard this phrase, leaders are readers. Mm -hmm. And you've probably used it before. And it's just one of those things that's always stuck in my mind. And when I was young, I started my first agency when I was kind of mid mid-20s and I had imposter syndrome and I'll be walking into like the CMO of Microsoft trying to sell and pitch my agency and uh, you know what did a 25 year old kid know and the only way that I could address that was to read and so I became an avarist reader of everything because I wanted to be in that room with a level of knowledge and education so Back in the early days, it was the books by Jeffrey Moore, Crossing the Chasm and Inside the Tornado, that really got my mind fascinated. And this was when technology was taking off. There was a book I remember called Techno Brands uh, by a guy called Chuck Pettis. And I remember writing so many notes in that book. It was one of those real eye openers. And there was also a book by a guy called Jesper Kundi called Corporate Religion. It was probably the first book about brand that really got me excited. And as I mentioned before, the Eating the Big Fish, The Pirate Inside by Adam Morgan. He's an absolute whiz and super brain on, on challenger brands, as is um, the ex-president of TBWA, a guy called Jean-Marie Drew. And he wrote a book or a trilogy of books around disruption, which I thought were really exciting. But in recent times, it's books like Play Bigger. Um, I'm sure you probably had that one on your... Uh, not on that your one, yeah, but I know it. It's a very popular book. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading now that you can get back to reading books? <laughs> yeah, so, when, so it's, it's, it's weird you say that because when lockdown happened, obviously over a year ago, I, along with lots of other people probably here around the world, you know, used Audible. And so I would go for a walk and listen to a book. And I found it fascinating that you could, you know, go for a walk and get some exercise and read or listen at the same time and get that knowledge injection. So the the ones that I've um, read really recently, there's one called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by 
a brilliant lady called Shoshona Zabuf, and the book is mind-blowing in talks uh, terms of the way Google and Facebook and Instagram and all these uh, other companies extract behavioral data from, from us and use that data. Um, but there's also probably the best book. I don't read a lot of um, um, fiction books and things like that, but there's a brilliant book called Can't Hurt Me by a Navy SEAL called Davy Goggins. And it's like the most gutsiest, grittiest, heartwarming, incredibly entertaining and absorbing real page turn of a book, which has probably been the best book I've read in, I would say, the last five years for sure. Oh. David Goggins, Can't Hurt Me. Incredible yeah, I've, I've heard story. of that. I haven't read it. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Amazing. Interesting. Interesting. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, your, your company, uh, site, your humanizingb2b.com where people can go to, to continue to follow along and, and engage with you and your uh, community. We're going to link all the books that you've mentioned. So it's going to be quite a long list there. Thank Whoa, you. I, sounds good. Yeah, that's going to be great. And uh, we'll include your LinkedIn profile. And for you, dear listener, please do me one big favor and reach out to Paul on social media or sign up for his newsletter or email him and thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. As I often say, there are over 1 million podcasts and Paul Cash has agreed to come on this one, and I really appreciate him doing it. And also, the authors just love hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners. Maybe it's because the authors feel like, oh, well, maybe it was a good idea to be on that show. So <laughs> there you go. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Humanizing B2B, The New Truth in Marketing That Will Transform Your Brand and Your Sales. The authors are Paul Cash and James Trezona. Paul, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Douglas, you are a legend. Thank you for having me. On behalf of myself and I know all your listeners around the world, you rock. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, 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 oh